Hello and welcome to this podcast from the Professional Practices and Financial Services team at Suffrey. My name is Jamie Lane. I'm a partner and head of the group based in our Bournemouth office. And today in part two of our look at M&A in the legal sector, I'm joined by Niraj Patel, who's our partner and head of our corporate finance team here at Suffrey, and Andrew Fraser, who's the senior manager in Niraj's team. Following our first part, where we were joined by Charlie Fletcher from Mishkondorea, giving his insight into his experience of merging two law firms together. In this episode, we're going to look at a deep dive into our recent report, which examined M&A in the legal sector for the year to June 2023. We'll highlight the, the key trends that we saw from our research and the key factors impacting UK legal sector M&A. And we'll also look at the listed law firm business model and how this contrasts the private equity acquisition model we're also seeing coming into the legal market. We'll also have a look at what's coming ahead over the next 12 months. So for those people that haven't seen the report, the report is available on our website. It's a review of M&A activity in the legal sector. And it's the first report that we've done at SAFRI on the legal sector. So it's quite interesting for us to outline some of the activity and also make some have some views on what's driving that activity. And now uh, we can ask Naraj, what are your views as, as a corporate finance partner on what's driving activity in the legal market? Thanks, Jamie. Well, I mean, first and foremost, uh, the report shows that there's been a a marked uptick in in transactional activity in the legal space over the course of the last twelve months, which has been interesting, slightly going against the the grain of the wider M and A market. There's been a lot of activity over the, over the past few years, actually, and there's a few things that are driving it. I'll, I'll probably focus on some of the the headline trends and 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 perhaps Andrew can dive into some of the the more detail with regards to some of the key stats coming up which are actually fascinating so from my perspective you know the legal sector continues to be a highly fragmented industry um lots of sort of small and medium-sized businesses and therefore there is definitely the opportunity to continue to consolidate that consolidation has been happening over a number of years but there's plenty of opportunity for that to to carry on which is very much driving MA in the marketplace succession i think continues to be more and more challenging for for a number of these law firms in terms of you know finding the new partners of tomorrow and therefore from a from a partnership perspective an exit route with regards to selling your business as opposed to perhaps bringing through the next generation again lots of reasons why that's proving to be increasingly challenging is a neat solution for many business owners in the legal space pi pi insurance in terms of both the cost um, which seems to be increasing so becoming you know increasingly uneconomic i think for for certain small businesses but also as a retiring lawyer or, or set of partners and, and and dealing with the pi runoff issue i think continues to be a challenge and again you know if you if you can manage to sell your business that's a neat solution around that expansion of service lines i think is key that applies to lots of businesses in lots of different sectors and as we heard from charlie in part one of this podcast you know the tailor the sort of the, the mishcon transaction there the merge of the two firms in a, a big part of it was around a complementary aspect in terms of the nature of their client base and, and the ability to cross sell some of the services that mishcon would provide to perhaps larger corporates and a sort of slightly later stage of their life cycle to some of taylor vintner's earlier sort of um, sort of smaller 
innovative companies seem to be a nice fit so a nice demonstration of of complementary expansion of service lines and then finally technology uh, again applies to lots of businesses and lots of sectors the, the ability to utilize technology to perhaps run things more efficiently cut costs in a number of places and actually MA is quite a good way of increasing your client base with regards to then sort of offering up those synergies in order to utilize the 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 ever sort of rapid pace of change when it comes to technology innovations and indeed ai going forward and you referenced charlie there and one thing that he said in in part one was that you know neither firm needed to merge it was very much driven by strategy and and having you know service lines that would be complementary etc culture that fits together do you think that's always the case not necessarily so you know i think in common with any any sector and MA process you know there are some transactions that happen for the right reasons and some that happen for the wrong reasons and you know i mean charlie mentioned it having a, a really clear picture and idea as to why you're undertaking you know what's the rationale behind the transaction and indeed making sure that everybody across both businesses are signed up to signed up to why they're doing it the key objectives are that all helps with the post integration planning side of things but you know absolutely jamie the, the, there are there are always good examples and, and bad examples in terms of mna mna isn't you know for, for everybody it's not for every firm but it can work very very well if it's done for the right reasons and clearly executed well yeah, thank you. So, Andrew, you, you did a lot of the work into putting this report together. Talk to me a little bit about some of the push-pull factors that you think are influencing uh, M&A in the legal sector. Yeah, Candy, Jamie, and thanks for having me on. Great to be here. Various different factors that we found coming out, and yeah, quite a, a broad range, really. I mean, the, the key theme that came out was around the fact that the law firms and the general market are experiencing challenges currently, be that business uncertainty, be it inflation, Naraj, you mentioned um, PI cost inflation, and I suppose just general wage wage inflation that are really impacting the outlook of these firms. And I think the, the key push factor for a lot of the law firms is, is simply trying to benefit from economies of scale. Um, and as you mentioned, Naraj, trying to break into different markets and, um, and broaden those service offerings. Another key factor that we found was an awful lot of mid-sized firms looking to acquire fairly small firms. And that, again, is to provide critical mass, critical trading mass. I think quite an interesting stat that came out of the analysis was that yeah, just over 92% of UK law firms still only have less than 20 employees. So it still is a highly, highly fragmented market. And there's lots of opportunities out there in terms of those mid-sized companies that are looking to acquire the smaller players to generate that, that critical mass. And it's interesting, as you, you touched on the succession planning piece. And one thing that came out of the analysis was that potentially as older partners are retiring, passing on the reins to younger partners, there's perhaps a generational changed in terms of appetite towards risk. Perhaps, I don't want to generalize, but perhaps some of the older retiring partners more risk averse, whereas the younger partners perhaps more open to, to the opportunity of MA activity to um to grow into the space. I think another thing that came out of our analysis was around the kind of the funding and the, the backing behind law firms. We've got firms such as DWF, 
recently been bought by inflection and that private equity backing is and will, will continue to provide funding to generate the M&A opportunities and to push those opportunities through. So I think that's something that particularly with DWF is, is certainly something that we'll, um, we'll see coming through in future. One of the things that I talk to a lot of my clients about is around the sort of ever-expanding, I suppose, support cost base uh, that firms are having to deal with. And, you know, we we often think of that being, you know, sort of IT, HR. Um, we've already talked about PI insurance. There is a, there's a, there's a real challenge, I think, where especially with recruitment, retention, and being able to be able to attract the right people that you do need to be offering the best IT, the best training experience as a differentiator against other other firms. I mean, do you think do you think that is a driver for for some of the activity that we see? I think it is, and I think putting on my my other hat as as you know an employee of a professional services firm, I think that IT piece is really important, particularly when you think about the smaller firms that. The new staffs and the new graduates that are coming through have been brought up with all of this tech all of their life. So if they are starting day one, you know, in their firm and their IT is not up to scratch, that that is a key, key issue. And that is gonna, yeah, fundamentally impact upon the, the that that firm's retention. So I think the ability to, to undertake MA activity to tap into, I suppose, larger firms. Um IT networks and, and just generally spread the cost is yeah I think that's definitely a key a key factor particularly amongst the acquisitions of those those smaller firms at the bottom end of the market. Yeah, absolutely. So Niraj, you've been involved in the listed law firm market in uh, various ways over the last few years. Talk talk to us a little bit about the model and and then how it's performed in you know from your perspective over the last few years. Yeah, sure. So uh, using an IPO and having access to capital markets for for legal businesses, I suppose that was a next next step or natural step following the alternative business structures we put into place. That was all around limited companies and having external shareholders. This then took it to a, another level with regards to opening up to, to a much wider shareholder base. And, and in many ways, you know, we talked about funding earlier on, you know, using the capital markets, using AIM, I think most of these companies that have listed are, are on AIM. It can be very good from, from the perspective of having good access to capital market. But again, a lot of it comes down to what we discussed earlier, which is deal rationale. So, you know, if, if these things are done for the right reasons, then fantastic. And, you know, you look at, there's a number of firms that have sort of IPO'd onto AIM, one or two that have since left. And it's been a mixed bag in terms of performance. I think partly to do with the fact that you're almost hostess to fortune with regards to performance. So actually you're then you're you're you sort of succumb to the pressures of of, of what, what comes with shareholder expectations, which is effectively continued growth all the way through. And actually, if you're not hitting the key metrics for whatever reason, and you, and we all know is as growing businesses, we all have ups and downs, good years, bad years. Capital markets are just not forgiving place. So actually, you know, probably unfairly so, you're, you're judged by virtue of, you know, what your share price performance has been like since IPO and, and, and the report references 
that for that very reason with regards to key metrics now that can be slightly misleading but ultimately that's the, the ultimate judgment actually and even though perhaps some of the underlying performance might be good you might have good continue to have good culture come on to that in a moment if for whatever reason something's not quite come off corporate activity for example has come off there's certain elements of your business that have just failed to live up to analyst expectations that's going to really sort of adversely impact your share price. So, so it's not at all in your gift with regards to, I suppose, performance. And that impacts, you know, impacts share price. Therefore, that potentially impacts share options, which your employees have got. That impacts attraction and retention of, of key people. I think that the firms that have done it well, again, they've got really good deal rationale behind it. There's often a danger around too much you know, funding be used with regards to shareholder cash outs. And actually that can be dangerous, but actually where you're using the funding, the capital markets to good use, Gately being a key example, actually their M&A program has been pretty strong. They've bought some good businesses. They've bought some scaled businesses. And actually we talked about M&A earlier on. They, they've used M&A pretty well. And actually that they've picked the right business. They've looked at where gaps are with regards to you know, the service lines. They've actually looked at other service lines, which which are outside of the legal space, but complement um, other parts of what they do. And in general terms, that's led to a sort of steady sort of increase in, in, in market capitalization and the markets have reacted well to that. Ultimately, it's it's led to profits increasing at a steady rate. Um so, so that that's been that's been good for them. The challenge or one of the challenges always comes where you've got this separation of ownership versus delivery so in a traditional partnership model actually you know all the partners are almost but they're driven towards the same goal ultimately collectively and will share equally in 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 profits and remuneration where you've got external shareholders a natural divergence between the two and that can cause a bit of an issue as well in terms of retaining your top talent and ultimately ultimately retaining clients and, and where you don't get that model right with regards to shareholder returns versus remuneration of particularly your best performing if i can still call them partners that can unwind and unravel very very quickly if not managed properly one of the challenges surely from a listed perspective is sort of short-term decision making so you know as you, you said you're hostage to fortune in terms of share price analyst responses etc cetera, etc cetera. how do how how do you think someone like Gately, for instance, has managed to, you know, have record steady profits and and avoid that short-termist approach? I think they benefited to some degree to sort of being first to market. I think that's that's useful and and that stood them in good stead actually. But that's not that's not that's only part of the story. I think it, ultimately it's got to you've, you've got to be confident in your business plan and your ability to execute transactions. So you know, short you, you're right. You know, it's very easy. To form a short-term view, and and but but stock markets will will sort of find you out very quickly, actually. So I think for them, they they've made the acquisitions I mentioned earlier at the right times. They've managed to fund them in 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 smart ways, and and I think ultimately, again, it comes down to deal rationale. If you look at something properly, you you look at what a, a sort of an addition to your business will bring to you from a profits perspective. I think the diligence around that from a financial perspective, um, naturally, we'll talk about that. But ultimately, that's important because, you know, bringing on other law firms, other legal professionals, again, 
sort of harking back to some of the things, the good things that Charlie talked about earlier. It's all about people and culture. So looking at that very carefully, making sure that actually they can integrate well into the business, they can work well into the business model and actually communicating what the listed platform has to bring and the benefits of that. I think all of that sort of contributes quite well. So I think they've been well in terms of selecting the right businesses, the right people coming on board, retain those people. Um, I think the rest looks after itself. So, Andrew, as we were publishing this report, BWF, which was another listed law firm, was in the process of being taken private by inflection, significant um, private equity fund. How does being in a, under private equity ownership differ uh, to the listed law firm model? What do, what do you think are the key key changes that, that, that they will see? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite an interesting one because... Clearly, the accounting sector and the legal sector, there's lots of similarities, you know, both professional services, similar kind of fee charging structure, and similarly fairly fragmented market, um, lots of mid-sized firms. But yeah, I mean, in, in the accounting sector, there have been one or two attempts to, to go down that that listed route, haven't necessarily been overly successful and haven't really been been taken forward, but quite a contrast to what, yeah, we're, we're seeing um, as touched on previously. See in, in the legal sector, well, there's there yeah, quite a few yeah, as we, we discussed listed firms, yeah, varying, varying um, fortunes really, but um, it's 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 not not an easy thing. I think in terms of the accountancy side of things, the the private equity model, it's yeah, it, it doesn't come without its challenges, as, as Naraj mentioned. You have areas where particularly people coming up through the firm may. may perceive that their opportunities are, are perhaps not what they once were but it's certainly a, it's a, yeah an interesting comparison between the two when on the face of it you would think the county sector and the legal sector do have a lot of a lot of similarities so we talked a lot about culture with charlie in our in our part one of our podcast how do, how do you think the ownership structure what are the key things to think about in terms of ownership structure and culture maybe naraj you could take that one yeah, sure. So, I mean, ultimately, you know, a lot of it's going to be down to incentivization pieces around sort of really driving everybody towards a common aim, really. Um, ultimately, the financials come out of it and, and, and everyone's going to benefit from that. But, you know, that's the key. I think, you know, it's a difficult thing to to build up. And I think you know, where you've got successful businesses that have grown through that, going through anything transformational can always risk damage that culture be it an acquisition or indeed an ipo so it's maintaining that culture and with an acquisition you know again charlie talked about lots of good things that they did around you know early buy-in making sure the key decision makers with regards to each of them were, were talking and they got to know each other quite early on actually in the process which was quite useful to understand now might that stop the transaction if perhaps things didn't work out perhaps thing you know those early meetings didn't go as well as they, they might have done who knows but ultimately, it feels like they knew very early on that actually that was going to be quite a good fit. When it comes to IPOs, clearly the clientele, the people, the personnel initially won't change. But actually, it's what what things that might drive behaviours might change with regards to a different set of pressures that being a listed company brings. And perhaps a different remuneration model that a listed company brings. If you can continue to promote 
and think about the right behaviors you want but structuring is like a different way that can work quite well um you know my view is you've always got to think about what what are the behavior outcomes you want and then work backwards from that with regards to how you might reward people um from a remuneration perspective i could jump in jamie just one thing that certainly came to mind when i was listening to charlie's content earlier in the the podcast is around the, the integration at almost two levels you've got integration at you know partnership management board level but then below that and a huge piece is, is integration at the staff level and obviously it's, it's difficult in terms of confidentiality with with transactions and perhaps the staff integration can't can't happen until you're further down the track but i think certainly key not to lose um lose sight of that and certainly very very key to prioritize that post-transaction because fundamentally they, they are the people that are going to be running business day to day and if there are any issues there, I think Charlie also mentioned the kind of mood contagion, which I thought was really interesting. If there are issues coming out of the, the staff base, because perhaps, you know, integration isn't going so well, that does have the risk to, yeah, the contagion factor is a, a huge risk as I see it. So, yeah, I think, yeah, really key to remember both sides of things. It's it's the top down, but also bottom up. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, assuming we're sat here in 12 months' time, uh, reflecting back on the year to June 24, what are your key the key things to look out for? Niraj? So I think from an M&A perspective, I'd like to think that there's, you know, there's a lot more consolidation for all the reasons we've talked about to follow, not, not only over the next 12 months, but I think over the next sort of four or five years. Whether we'll hit the levels we've seen over the last 12 months, time will tell, I suppose. But certainly the key drivers are are still there. I think it's probably going to be more around M&A that you may well get more private equity coming in, um, as we've seen with DWF. And it's, it's often the sort of one large transaction then sort of, you know, makes other firms look at this as an opportunity with regards to the business case, the business model, if all the key drivers are there. So I'd expect there to be some more interest with regards to appetite in that space as well. But ultimately, there's nothing in the short term, I don't think, with regards to general trends, which look to be changing anytime soon. For me, I think it's the key for anyone thinking about sort of making an acquisition in this space. I think, I've said this before, it's doing it for the right reason, the right rationale. So it's about looking at your own firm, looking at where you are, what, what are your own sort of ambitions and growth objectives um, or, or, or even sort of elements around de-risking your particular business that's the first thing so it's got to be part of your overall business and growth strategy if, if MA sort of forms part of that it's then being I think very selective around what might what, you know, what type of firm might fit well in terms of service lines in terms of geography and of course you know only when you get further down the road with regards to having a number of conversations, you know, culturally, what might fit best for your firm. So, so I think it is about being selective, having the proper deal rationale, as opposed to just doing, you know, getting on the M and A bandwagon because um, it feels like it's you know, deal volumes are up, everyone else is doing it. It's got to be the right thing for your firm from a strategic rationale perspective and and, and executing it well. Andrew, anything to add? add? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think it's going to be yeah, an interesting 12 months. I think the 12 months to June 23, we saw challenging business conditions and, and that in some circumstances led to m caused people to try and mitigate some of the risks that were caused by the business challenges through m 
And I just wonder how things are going to pan out if things do improve in terms of general business trading. Does that mean that the pressure comes off M&A and actually people are able to continue with their business as is? Or is it the flip side where, yeah, it's going to be for a different reason, but firms still pursue M&A and they pursue M&A because the outlook is looking greener and they think, you know, excellent, let's push on with M&A to grow, to broaden our uh, our service offerings, to, to capitalize on those yeah, future opportunities. It's definitely going to be an interesting time. And as you say, you know, the 12 months of June 23 weren't exactly easy and business conditions are still pretty challenging out there. Um, so it will be, it'll be great to see how this pans out over the next uh, next few months. Uh, for our audience, as I say, the report is on our website uh, and uh, you can you can view it on there. Thank you to both Niraj and Andrew for joining me today. It's been really interesting to get your views on and your insight into that report. Just to finish off, uh, SACA provide a range of tax compliance and business advisory services to professional practices and financial services specialists. And to find out how we might be able to help you in your business, please visit our website at www.safri.com. Thank you.